We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. I'm at Cape Canaveral. This is Kennedy Space Centre. Perhaps no other place on Earth has quite the level of optimism as this place has demonstrated over the years. Problems are soluble. And although at times there have been missteps in the exploration of the cosmos, people have lost their lives, there have been terrible errors that have been made, those errors typically have been corrected. If we persevere, if we continue, if we recognise that although problems are inevitable, they are always soluble, then the next step won't merely be the moon or Mars, it'll be the stars. Welcome to TalkCast and my latest in the series on the beginning of infinity. This has to be very close to my favourite chapter in the book. I've only recently arrived home from a visit to the United States, hence the, uh, the shirt. Um, it's been a long time since I've actually been there, but it was positively buzzing just the way I remembered it. It's really optimistic. It's got this aroma of optimism about it in a way that I guess the locals have probably simply become accustomed to. Things are tall and bright and industrious and diverse, but it's all very wonderful. Um, it, this optimism is etched into its history so deeply. Now, when I say that, I'm, I'm kind of comparing it to places that uh, maybe I'm biased in having visited recently, areas of Europe and Asia and, of course, Australia. Um, uh, and speaking of which, speaking of Australia, uh, these surrounds, they, they aren't really setting the tone for the brightness that is this chapter and the optimism that is this chapter. So I think I know of somewhere better. Now, I first started preparing to read through this chapter and to make comments on it around the time that Avengers Endgame, the uh, last big Marvel superhero movie, came out, and also around the time the final episodes of Game of Thrones were aired. But actually, I've kind of been more excited about this episode than either of those things because it's chapter nine, and chapter nine is optimism. I don't know if David did this by design, but being chapter nine, this places optimism right in the center of the book. At the end of this chapter, we will have covered exactly one half in terms of the number of chapters of the beginning of infinity. The optimism in this chapter is unique. Now, there have been physicists who have noticed before that that which is not prohibited by the laws of physics must be possible. But David has developed this into a genuine worldview that has infinite reach into every single domain of inquiry. It doesn't matter the subject, problems are soluble. Now, I mentioned uh, the Avengers movie, Endgame, probably the biggest movie of um, this year, certainly in terms of cost it will be. Actually, in that movie, we hear about the Deutsch Proposition. Now, I don't know what the Deutsch Proposition is, and I don't think David does either. Uh, I'd like to know what the scriptwriters were thinking, but for our age, actually, something more along the lines of, of Deutschian optimism in Chapter 9 could certainly serve as the Deutsch Proposition. Maybe something like the couplet, problems are soluble, problems are inevitable. Or indeed, his principle of optimism, his definition of what optimism is, being that all evils are due to a lack of knowledge. Optimism is the, the rational stance, given our ability to create knowledge. It's tied to this problem-solving attitude and placing the problem at the heart of epistemology rather than the chimera of justification. Optimism is also connected to physics because problems are soluble because solutions found are physically possible transformations that allow us to overcome the obstacle that we've called a problem. These transformations are possible because they begin as computations, creations in the minds of universal explainers, people. So here we have chapter nine connected to the beginning of the beginning of infinity, how explanations are what transform the world and how these explanations are about what is physically possible. And in many cases, actually what is prohibited, what is physically not possible when it comes to physics, morality, and so forth. Optimism is about wealth creation and the conditions under which decisions are best made to achieve outcomes that do not entrench error. And you can see the chapter on choices for that. And optimism is about the connection between epistemology or abstract knowledge creation and physical resources. And we're going to see that in the chapter on unsustainable. 
Optimism does not say that it will be done. It says it can be done. And what it is, is to solve our actual problems. To do this takes resources. And to know that a resource even is a resource takes knowledge. To extract the resources and then use them to create more knowledge takes wealth. And so the cycle leading to progress continues. Chapter 9. Optimism. The possibilities that lie in the future are infinite. When I say it is our duty to remain optimists, this includes not only the openness of the future, but also that which all of us contribute to it by everything we do. We are all responsible for what the future holds in store. Thus it is our duty not to prophesy evil, but rather to fight for a better world. Karl Popper, The Myth of the Framework, 1984. Martin Rees suspects that our civilization was lucky to survive the 20th century. For throughout the Cold War, there was always a possibility that another world war would break out, this time fought with hydrogen bombs, and that civilization would be destroyed. That danger seems to have receded. But in Rees's book Our Final Century, published in 2003, he came to the worrying conclusion that civilization now had a 50% chance of surviving the 21st century. So I'll, I'll pause almost immediately to remark that this chapter could be read alongside the discussion that Rees and Deutsch had at the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacture and Commerce, or the RSA as they call themselves. What was illuminating in that discussion was the questions that were asked as well as the discussion between Rees and Deutsch. So I wouldn't say that pessimism is merely connected to, or even intimately tied up with, bad ideas like authoritarianism, uh, anti-humanism, uh, coercion. It's not merely intimately connected with these things. It is at a deeper level of explanation. It's a more fundamental mistake than those others. Those others are derivative of pessimism. Pessimism is at the heart of these bad ideas. They're motivating. It is motivating these other bad ideas as well. So pessimism about all sorts of things, not just about humans, about knowledge, about technology, uh, in the discussion between Rees and Deutsch, a number of people asked about the inequality that comes with technology. That this is really part of uh, the cultural discussion at the moment about how certain people in Silicon Valley have just so much money and so much power that really we need to start thinking about ways in which government can intervene because otherwise these people are going to have too much power. Perhaps they already have too much power. And so the concern there is that Technology breeds inequality, and of course, we always assume in these discussions, don't we, that inequality is bad. That, that's just assumed. Now, we don't go any deeper because the discussion rarely moves beyond the idea that inequality simply is bad on its face. That's an assumption. That's a premise we begin with. And of course, if you begin with that assumption, then you're led to all sorts of weird conclusions. Rather than thinking that inequality is actually a good thing, that it is a sign that people are pursuing their own interests to the degree that they can and the degree that they want to. So when people think they've seen something like inequality being magnified or amplified by something like technology, then they call for things like redistribution. They call for force. Martin Rees in that discussion explicitly calls for redistribution. Others just saw inequality as a bad thing. Uh, and if you watch that discussion, you, you can hear one questioner ask a question. Well, it's actually a, more of a very long statement, actually. There was no question mark at the end of it. But I thought it contained a very important insight. And, and she observed that far from technology increasing inequality, technology, like, say, smartphones, has given billions of people worldwide, among some of the poorest people in the world, access to information like never before. It really does level the playing field. And yes, if you provide value to billions of people around the world, it's not surprising that you become a billionaire. But in doing so, you've helped so many people. You've actually leveled the playing field. The reason that people have smartphones in the third world now, or what used to be called the third world, is because they have sufficient wealth to purchase those smartphones. And those smartphones are worth more to them than what they would otherwise have done with that money. This is a wonderful thing. It's a glorious thing that really we should be uh, praising. But this is another fracture point between, between optimists who are so scarce, so rare as to be, one may as well put them on the endangered species list, and the pessimists who are common. 
The fracture point is, what do you think when you look at our situation with technology? When you stand back and you assess what's going on, do you think, no, this is terrible. Some people are getting too powerful and too wealthy. This technology, Apple is getting too powerful. Google is getting too powerful. Facebook is getting too powerful. Is that what you're concentrating on? Is that what you're focusing on? Are you focused on the few individuals at the top of these companies who happen to have a lot of wealth and who are gaining a lot of wealth? Or are you focused on the great good that has been done by these companies for so many people around the world? And that if you look ahead, there's great hope in this. Or do you see a dystopia where these people, these, these Machiavellian Mr. Burns-like are, are wringing their hands, thinking about all the ways in which they can use their power to corrupt all of society. Indeed, we've seen recently that there are all sorts of reasons to disagree with the politics of the people in Silicon Valley. But the way in which to combat bad ideas is with good ideas, not with force. Optimism says that we can create knowledge in order to overcome the evils in society. And some of those evils are simply bad political ideas which many of the people at the top of Silicon Valley indeed have. And do you think when you see massive amounts of wealth created, created mind you, not taken from somewhere else, created, created through knowledge, instantiated in technology, and then sold to billions of people around the world because, because those people, those billions of people see it as such a benefit. Do you think to yourself, let us confiscate that wealth. That wealth concentrated in the hands of a few is dangerous. Or do you think, what a wonderful thing, that these companies can now go ahead and make even better products in the future? Because if they don't, they're going to go the way of so many companies prior to them, which go out of business. I think it's a really entertaining and informative discussion, the RSA discussion on optimism between Deutsch and Reese. And if you're reading this chapter, it's a wonderful adjunct to add to your understanding of what David writes about here. So David has just said of Reese that Reese calculated there was only a 50% chance of surviving the 21st century, and David goes on writing. Again, this was because of the danger that newly created knowledge would have catastrophic consequences. For example, Reese thought it likely that civilization destroying weapons, particularly biological ones, would soon become so easy to make that terrorist organizations, or even malevolent individuals, could not be prevented from acquiring them. He also feared accidental catastrophes, such as the escape of genetically modified microorganisms from a laboratory, resulting in a pandemic of an incurable disease. Intelligent robots and nanotechnology, engineering on an atomic scale, could in the long run be even more threatening, he wrote. And it is not inconceivable that physics could be dangerous too. For instance, it has been suggested that elementary particle accelerators that briefly create the conditions that are in some respects more extreme than any since the Big Bang might destabilize the very vacuum of space and destroy our entire universe. Reese pointed out that for his conclusion to hold, it's not necessary for any one of those catastrophes to be at all probable, because we need be unlucky only once. And we incur the risk afresh every time progress is made in a variety of fields. He compared this with playing Russian roulette. I'll pause there. In this chapter, David concentrates on two great public intellectuals. One is Martin Rees, the Astronomer Royal, a fantastically accomplished astronomer, physicist, scientist, public intellectual. The other is Thomas Malthus, who many great public intellectuals to today turn to to talk about. But really, there are a smorgasbord of public intellectuals that David might have talked about. Many of my own intellectual heroes People like Sam Harris or Douglas Murray. Almost anyone who's written a non-fiction book in the last 20 years. Anyone with a podcast. Perhaps my favourite of all of the great pessimists of the 20th and 21st century is, of course, Nick Bostrom. Now, Nick Bostrom doesn't use Russian roulette. Um, he's not even pulling rabbits out of hats, but he is pulling balls out of urns. And he compares human creativity to pulling a ball out of an urn. And so far, we've been pulling useful balls out of the urn. And sometimes the useful ball that comes out of the urn can have good and bad applications. But what he's very worried about is the black ball. The black ball that might be pulled out of the urn, the black ball, according to Bostrom, is a technology that is just so nefarious that there is no upside. 
and it will destroy the civilization which pulls it out of the urn. If you want a summary of Bostrom's ideas, you can just Google him and go to his own website. He's written many books that concentrate on uber-pessimism. Pessimism that talks about existential risk, the end of the future. So he's very animated about Now, Sam Harris had him on the podcast earlier in 2019. A very good interview, a very great insight into just how deep pessimism can go. They talked about all sorts of things. One, one thing that, that um, just to speak to what David has mentioned there, all these different things that could go wrong and that people are worried about. Bostrom's worried about rather the same things that Reese is worried about, which is what Harris is worried about. And, and Harris and Bostrom agreed with each other that, for example, in the future, we might have something like everyone might have their own 3D printer where you can 3D print rather CRISPR style, your own biological add-ons in order to fix up your own genetic code when it starts to go wrong over time. And what Harris was really worried about, and Bostrom kind of agreed, was that with such a technology where everyone at home can just 3D print their own biological organisms or biological fixes to problems that go wrong, it could also be used for evil. And so you only need one person out of the billions that are on Earth who decide to use this technology for evil that could kill millions or perhaps billions of people. Maybe they could genetically engineer in their home 3D biological printer the virus that will be as easily spread as the common cold, but, but more virulent than any virus we've ever encountered before. A, a virus that will be more deadly than any virus we've encountered before. And they both agreed that this was a terrible existential risk. What confused me is, why is it that the same 3D printing technology can't also be used to print the cure for that particular virus. If we're that advanced that we're printing viruses, then we're also printing the T cells that can attack the viruses. Okay, and so David writes, but there is a crucial difference between the human condition and Russian roulette. The probability of winning at Russian roulette is unaffected by anything that the player may think or do. Within its rules, it is a game of pure chance. In contrast, the future of civilization depends entirely on what we think and do. If civilization falls, that will not be something that just happens to us. It will be the outcome of choices that people make. If civilization survives, that will be because people succeed in solving the problems of survival. And that too will not have happened by chance. So I'll pause here and I want to take a I won't say a deep dive, a shallow dive, into some of the work of Nick Bostrom on this. If there's anyone, as I think I've hinted at, who can compete with Martin Rees for, for a, a rationally minded super pessimist, it will be Nick Bostrom. Bostrom has a number of different theses about how the world's going to end, or civilization might end, or all of humanity will destroy itself, or will be destroyed, and so on and so forth. One of his latest papers on this is called the Vulnerable World Hypothesis. Now, when I look at uh, Nick Bostrom's page, as interesting as it is, like his book, Superintelligence, that I've written an extensive critique of, I find it to be, this isn't supposed to be just purely pejorative. It, it is genuinely the sense that I get in, in reading some of his stuff. Uh, Superintelligence was very much like this. It read to me like a science fiction novel. It seemed to me to just ignore reality in so many ways. It certainly ignored the ways in which we know knowledge is created. And so if you ignore certain things about how epistemology actually works, how physics actually works, then yes, some of his conclusions follow. Follow from false epistemology, follow from physics that we don't operate within. So to be specific, he is a strong proponent for Bayesianism. He believes in inductive reasoning, that given the past, you can predict the future. We know this is false. The future looks nothing like the past. Whatever has happened previously is not guaranteed to happen tomorrow. If you'd like to know more about this, just Google my name, Brett Hall, and induction, and on Google, and it will bring up an article of mine about induction. Or, of course, go to The Fabric of Reality by David Deutsch and read the sections there on induction, or Go to Popper, any one of his works about induction, objective knowledge is a good one. Now, 
because Bostrom is someone who likes to prophesy the future and likes to use inductive type reasoning in an attempt to do so. Of course, he can't actually do this. There's no such thing as inductive reasoning. So you cannot, you cannot validly predict the future given the current state of events. What you can do is to take a good explanation, something like Newton's laws, and predict the evolution of a simple physical system over time. That's actual prediction. You can take a good explanation of the laws we understand chemistry operates under. We might say that given a good explanation, for example, an acid plus a base, when combined together, will typically give you a salt plus water. And so if we have a special case, if I take a hydrochloric acid and sodium hydroxide, and I mix these two things together, my prediction will be, based on that good explanation about how these two chemicals, acid and base, react together, I can predict that given those particular examples of acid and base, I will get uh, sodium chloride plus water. This happens because there is, an fund there is a fundamental principle that we're operating within, a good scientific explanation about how certain chemical reactions work. This is not the kind of thing that Nick Bostrom ever has. What Nick Bostrom has, what Martin Rees has, what any of the great pessimistic prophets of our time have are wild guesses. Wild guesses about the ways in which if people choose to do nothing or choose to do the wrong thing, that calamities will ensue. That catastrophe will follow. But this is not prediction. This is prophecy. This is assuming the worst, the worst will happen. But why worry? Why worry about what the Martin Reeses and the Nick Bostroms of the world prophesy? Well, because lots of people listen. And lots of people listen. I guess there's a few sociological factors involved here, psychological factors. Uh, my own pet theory is that people like watching disaster movies. Uh, really, we like, we, we get excited by the great asteroid that's heading towards the city or the virus that is taking over the world uh, or the aliens that have come to wreak havoc upon humanity. It's exciting to think, you know, what might happen during such a situation. These are ways in which we entertain ourselves. And just because you, I don't know, have a philosophy degree or you have a serious podcast, doesn't mean you're immune from that kind of entertainment. You may not want to spend your time talking about the movie, The War of the Worlds, you know, no one will take that seriously, or Deep Impact, or Terminator, but it could be fun to talk to a philosopher who basically believes in the reality of all of those kinds of things and how they're going to happen and has written papers on it with equations and mathematics to try and convince people that yes, the worst is coming. There's a market for this kind of idea. But how seriously should we take these things? Not only how seriously should we take them, what are the alternatives? Well, let's just drill down on, we'll, we'll just pick two of, of, of well, okay, three. We'll pick three of Bostrom's ideas. Firstly, um, superintelligence that I've been very animated about. His, his thesis here is that systems can be created such that they're better at us at thinking in every single domain that they will take over the world. And they might, for example, turn the world into paper clips. This is one idea. And Sam Harris puts it as, you can simply imagine a system like we have today that is better at every single human at playing chess or better at playing the go game or better at driving than any human can or better at shooting a gun than any human can. I say, okay, so, iterate for every single capacity that we can program. Then you have a system that is, by definition, better at everything we know about than a person is. So therefore we have a superintelligence. And if we programmed it in the wrong way, or if it started to think to itself, these people are superfluous, or this planet is superfluous, or I want to follow my programming which will allow me to turn the planet into paperclips, we'll be unable to stop it because by definition it's better at us and faster than us and stronger than us at everything. This is false because 
The way that people think is not by slavishly following an algorithm. It's by creatively conjecturing new ideas, new solutions, things that people have never previously thought of before. And so if you do have a system which is better at us at everything that we can program, we only need to find one, one thing not in that list of programs and we can thwart that thing. Creativity will always beat a system that lacks it. And of course, if you have a system that does have creativity, then you can teach it. Then it's not going to turn the world into paperclips because it can be persuaded that turning the world into paperclips is not a good idea. In fact, it can persuade itself and it would prior to doing so if it was genuinely creative. And if it's not creative, again, the only thing you need to do is to be creative yourself to outwit it. Okay, so that's super intelligence. I still recommend that people read it because if they're interested in this particular idea, it seems to me to be the best work defending that particular thesis. Terrible though it is, I still think that it's worth reading because then you understand what other people are getting at when they argue that the robots are going to take over the world. This is the kind of thinking that underpins uh, their doomsday scenarios. So next is the vulnerable world hypothesis. And again, Bostrom is animated by, in the same way that, that Reese is, that these terrible things have a certain chance of happening. And so therefore there's a probability associated with them. And therefore we can use these probabilities, plug them into Bayes' theorem and predict likely outcomes. Uh, one thing about Bostrom that, um, Bostrom's writing, I should say, that irks me, and I've mentioned this kind of thing before, is the proliferation of nomenclature. This use of acronyms and just confusing terminology where really it's a very simple idea that's being talked about. And so in the vulnerable world hypothesis, very early on in the paper, which is here, um, he talks about the reason why the vulnerable world hypothesis is true is because of something called the semi-anarchic default condition. <laughs> the, the <laughs> yeah, um, what semi-anarchic means is that uh, people are competing uh, with their different ideas, and the default condition <laughs> means that the world gets destroyed by default. Okay, so why? What's going on here? Well. He imagines a situation where there is a technology produced that is so powerful and there's many different people that have different ideas about how to use the technology, but you only need one of them out of the millions, maybe billions of people that have access to this technology who decide to use it in a way that can cause the destruction of the entire planet. So therefore, in a situation where you've got anarchy, okay, so no one's in control of these different people with this super powerful technology, then by default, it has to destroy the world. That's the semi-anarchic default condition. Sounds very um, complicated, but really that's, that's the basic idea. Okay, so if, if for example, it's kind, of, it's kind of like saying that if the planet was ruled by gods, each of whom have the capacity to destroy the world, then the world will get destroyed by default because at least one of these many, many gods is going to be a crazy evil god that wants to do that. The problem here is that, of course, with the vulnerable world hypothesis, is that it assumes that no knowledge could possibly be created to stop the evil person from using the world-destructing technology. But why? We're not told why. We're just told that there is such a technology, and by the way, the technology is um, the black ball. Okay, so um, uh, Bostrom, doesn't pull rabbits out of hats, he pulls balls out of urns. And so far we've been pulling balls out of urns and by a ball he means a bit of creativity. Okay, the urn is, well the urn is the, the creativity of humanity and the ball is some object of that creativity, okay, a piece of technology. And so far we've been pulling stuff out and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But all we need to do is to pull out one black ball, which is a bit of technology that's altogether bad and will destroy the civilization which pulls it out of the urn. Why should it destroy the civilization that pulls it out of the urn? Well, because of the semi-anarchic default condition, because um, even if the overwhelming majority of people in the society don't want to use 
the technology thus discovered. At least one person will, and you only need one to destroy the entire world. Why can't anyone stop them? That's the definition of a black ball. In other words, it's unrealistic. There is no such technology. There's no such technology that if one person got hold of it, it could destroy the entire planet without anyone doing anything about it. So Bostrom's solution, of course, and, and his solution to all of these things is some kind of authoritarianism, some kind of top-down imposition. So he, he, of course, he begins with pessimism about people, and he's led to this idea that, that we need, we can't trust people. So we need some kind of authoritarianism. We need a, a strong man at the top who can tell the rest of us what to do. Okay, it's it's an appeal to this philosopher king idea, this this very uh, this very ancient idea going back to Plato two and a half thousand years ago, that the only people that can be trusted are the great philosophers, and the great philosophers, uh, knowing everything that needs to be known, will direct society in the way that is best. In other words an assumption of non-fallibilism on the part of, or a lesser form of fallibilism amongst the philosophers and the smart people and the, the strong men at the top than among the general populace who cannot be trusted. Uh, he, he's got this, Bostrom has this, uh, this section of the paper, the vulnerable world hypothesis, which is again, it's an entertaining read as far as it goes. I find it a little bit like science fiction. Um, He's got this thing called the, the type one vulnerability. And he speaks about this actually in his uh, podcast with Sam Harris as well. And the essential idea here is that um, it's possible um, for individuals to become too empowered to create harm. And this is a terrible thing in the future that one day our technology, our knowledge causes individuals to be so powerful that they can create almost any harm. So he doesn't want individuals to become empowered to create harm or so empowered as to create harm. But the to create harm part of that sentence, that, that, that phrase to create harm is superfluous. If you're not empowered to create harm, then you're not empowered at all. Empowerment means you could do good or you could do evil. And so with whatever amount of power you have, the power could be used to do good or to not do good, to create or to destroy. This has always been the case. Every person that has ever been born has the capacity to create or to destroy, to do good or to do evil. Bostrom is concerned that in the, in the distant future, any one of us will have too much power to do harm, but the to do harm is, is pointless. He's really worried about too much power. He doesn't want individuals to have too much power. And so this is really another fracture point between the pessimists and the optimists, between collectivists and individualists, between those who have an optimistic view of humanity and how people are creators who want to do good, who want to solve their problems, and those who are very skeptical of the entire project of humanity and people. And so therefore they demand a kind of collectivism that we need to have, again, a committee, a king, um, uh, an elected group, something at the top that can keep control of everyone else. Of all the solutions to our circumstance, the problems that we have, this one is the most terrifying to me. This tyranny, this kind of belief, because we've had it so many times before, that some know better for everyone else. It's not a denial of the idea that there are evil people or that some people do want to destroy. It's an acceptance of that idea and that the only solution to that idea is for the good people, the good individuals, to make progress faster. And they will make progress faster if they're allowed to. If they're constrained by a state or authorities or committees or something else, then yes, their progress is going to be slowed in some way. And that causes them to have a great disadvantage compared to perhaps people who refuse to obey the rules and who want to do some destruction. At the moment, we're not in that situation. At the moment, what we have is relative freedom, such that individuals who are good can pursue solutions and can make progress and can create. 
While the people who want to destroy, they make some progress sometimes and cause some destruction at times, but generally they're thwarted. We can't create an unproblematic state. And this idea that we have some top-down imposition of control on all the individuals because we don't want them to become too empowered to create harm is a recipe for disaster. It assumes that we can prevent problems, but problems are inevitable. Okay, so that's the vulnerable world hypothesis. Let me put that one aside for the moment. Now there's, a, there's something else called the doomsday hypothesis, and I, I really want to come back to that. This is something that Bostrom himself didn't invent, but he's a great supporter of. And so I'd like to come back and I'll criticize that um, after a little bit more from the beginning of infinity. So returning to the book now, finally, <laughs> um, David writes, both the future of civilization and the outcome of a game of Russian roulette are unpredictable, but in different senses and for entirely unrelated reasons. Russian roulette is merely random. Although we cannot predict the outcome, we do know what the possible outcomes are and the probability of each, provided the rules of the game are obeyed. The future of civilization is unknowable because the knowledge that is going to affect it has yet to be created. Hence, the possible outcomes are not yet known, let alone their probabilities. Let me just repeat. The possible outcomes are not yet known, let alone their probabilities. This is the fatal blow against people who use Bayesian reasoning in order to predict, predict, I say predict, prophesy the future of civilization into the far distant reaches of time. It's not possible because we don't know what knowledge we'll have in the future that will affect the future. Back to the book. The growth of knowledge cannot change that fact. On the contrary, it contributes strongly to it. The ability of scientific theories to predict the future depends upon the reach of their explanations, but no explanation has enough reach to predict the content of its own successes, or their effects, or those of other ideas that have not yet been thought of. Just as no one in 1900 could have foreseen the consequences of innovations made during the 20th century, including whole new fields such as nuclear physics, computer science and biotechnology, so our own future will be shaped by knowledge that we do not yet have. We cannot even predict most of the problems that we shall encounter, or most of the opportunities to solve them, let alone the solutions and attempted solutions and how they will affect events. People in 1900 did not consider the internet or nuclear power unlikely. They did not conceive of them at all. Pause there on just my reflection on that short section. When we have prognostications about the far future by people, experts or otherwise, this is the problem. We do not even have the tools to properly imagine what the future will be like. Now, there is actually even a profession of sorts that has become uh, ascendant recently. The futurist, if you've heard of them. Uh, well, at least, I don't know if it's a profession that you can apply for. People start calling themselves futurists and then they get employed by businesses and educational institutions to try and predict trends. Um, so uh, these futurists, they, they, they declare what the trends are like in this or that particular field. And then on the basis of the way things are now, extrapolate, guess, what the future is going to be like. Of course, this is not just based on the knowledge we have about what the present is. It's, it's basically a bias of the knowledge that they have about the present state of technology and so, thing, so forth. But the future is going to be about knowledge not yet created. It's not going to be wildly guessed by a futurist. If it was, then the futurist wouldn't be a futurist. They'd be an inventor or a scientist or a creator of some sort. But what a futurist does is wildly guess about the future. Whereas actual progress happens through hypothesizing, conjecturing, and then testing and instantiating these guesses into technology by people whose names we don't yet know for the most part. So let's go back to the book. David writes, no good explanation can predict the outcome or the probability of an outcome of a phenomena whose course is going to be significantly affected by the creation of new knowledge. This is a fundamental limitation on the reach of scientific prediction. And when planning for the future, it is vital to come to terms with it. Following Popper, I shall use the term prediction for conclusions about future events that follow from good explanations and prophecy for anything that purports to know what is not yet knowable. 
Trying to know the unknowable leads inexorably to error and self-deception. Among other things, it creates a bias towards pessimism. For example, in 1894, the physicist Albert Michelson, or is it Mickelson? I hear physicists say, <laughs> say both at times, so let's call him Albert Mickelson for the moment, made the following prophecy about the future of physics. The more important fundamental laws and facts of all physical science have all been discovered. These are now so firmly established that the possibility of their ever being supplanted in consequence of new discoveries is exceedingly remote. Our future discoveries must be looked for in the six plates of decimals. Albert Nicholson, address at the opening of the Ryerson Physical Laboratory, University of Chicago, 1894. Now I had that book, uh, just by the way, um, have my little books in the background there. I probably should have put, which I do have somewhere or other, um, The End of Science by John Horgan. John Horgan is uh, was one of the, uh, he's someone who's interviewed uh, David Deutsch about the beginning of infinity. Um, but the end of science is um, kind of, it says some wonderful things about the progress of science over time, but concludes we've just about discovered everything that we can possibly hope to discover, and hence the end of science. Uh, terribly mistaken, um, but he could take note of uh, exactly what's being written here as well. Anyway, I'll continue with the beginning of infinity and David writes, what exactly was Mickelson doing when he judged that there was only an exceedingly remote chance that the foundations of physics as he knew them would ever be superseded. He was prophesying the future. How? On the basis of the best knowledge available at the time. But that consisted of the physics of 1894. Powerful and accurate though it was in countless applications, it was not capable of predicting the content of its successes. It was poorly suited even to imagining the changes that relativity and quantum theory would bring, which is why the physicists who did imagine them won Nobel Prizes. Michelson would not have put the expansion of the universe, or the existence of parallel universes, or the non-existence of the force of gravity on any list of possible discoveries whose probability was exceedingly remote. He just didn't conceive of them at all. So it's not that... So I'll just pause there. Um, that, that's an important point to emphasise. He just didn't conceive of them at all. And Michelson was a smart person. You know, one of the greatest physicists of all time, uh, of the Michelson-Morley experiment. You know, he helped to disprove the existence of the ether. Showed that when it came to, uh, uh, did, did, does direction matter? Uh, does relative motion matter when you're measuring the speed of light? As it turns out, no. The, the null hypothesis is correct. It makes no difference uh, who you are. Uh, when you're taking a measurement of the speed of light, you will always get the same result. So he figured this out, great experimentalist. Brilliant though he was, he couldn't conceive of the discoveries in his own field of expertise that were about to change the course of physics completely. Now it's at this point that unfortunately my camera fails. Now for those listening on audio, this makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. But if you are watching, then you'll notice that my camera has disappeared and instead I've just put some photos in. This doesn't go on for the remainder of the entire video, and I do manage to fix it up, but just as a warning for everyone. The lesson there should, in everyone's mind, be lit up in neon lights. It doesn't matter how brilliant you are, even within your own field, it is very difficult for you to predict what's going to happen next, let alone what's going to happen in fields far removed from your field of expertise let alone in all fields, in all fields that might affect the evolution of civilization. Anyone who pretends to know what's going to happen in the future, so-called futurists, the pessimists who are predicting global catastrophes, they think that they can predict the knowledge yet to be created, and in all cases they think that that knowledge yet to be created will be insufficient to solve the problems of today, let alone the problems of tomorrow. And this is pure prophecy. It's pessimism. It's false. Back to the book. A century earlier, the mathematician Joseph Louis Lagrange had remarked that Isaac Newton had not only been the greatest genius who had ever lived, but also the luckiest. For the system of the world can be discovered only once. Lagrange would never know that some of his own work, which he had regarded as a mere translation of Newton's into a more elegant mathematical language, was a step towards the replacement of Newton's system of the world. 
Michelson did live to see a series of discoveries that spectacularly refuted the physics of 1894, and with it, his own prophecy. Like Lagrange, Michelson himself had already contributed unwittingly to the new system. In this case, with an experimental result. In 1887, he and his colleague Edward Morley had observed that the speed of light relative to an observer remains constant when the observer moves. This astoundingly counterintuitive fact later became the centerpiece of Einstein's special theory of relativity. But Michelson and Morley did not realise. That was what they had observed. Observations are theory laden. Given an experimental oddity, we have no way of predicting whether it will eventually be explained merely by correcting a minor parochial assumption or by revolutionising entire sciences. We can know only after we have seen it in the light of a new explanation. In the meantime, we have no option but to see the world through our best explanations, which include our existing misconceptions, and that biases our intuition. Among other things, it inhibits us from conceiving of significant changes. Now, that idea that an experimental result, if it apparently refutes a long-established explanation, it can't cause us to reject that explanation. Not yet. This is the, in a sense, it's, it's a version of the Duhem-Quine thesis, that when you do have this apparent experimental falsification of a theory, you can never be sure, you don't know, whether or not you've actually shown the theory to be false, or if there's something about your experimental apparatus, your assumptions, something else about the way you've conducted the experiment that is flawed. So is it the experiment that was false, or is it the theory that was false? This is a Duhem-Quine thesis. Now, the Duhem-Quine problem says that, given that uh, logical possibility, that you can't make progress in science, or the progress in science therefore isn't possible because you can never know. Well, that's wrong. It's wrong because Clearly, we make progress in science. So progress in science happens in spite of this. And once we have a better theory, then we can tell which of these two things is actually true. Is it either the long-established theory has now been refuted by the experimental result, or is the experiment in some way flawed? And both of these things have happened over the history of science. For a case where the theory has been falsified, well, there are all the famous occasions, like, for example, where uh, we're deciding between Newtonian gravity and general relativity, and we do Eddington's experiment of the bending of starlight during a solar eclipse, and we refute Newton's gravity, and therefore we think that Einstein's theory of general relativity is closer to the truth. It's a better explanation. It solves our problems, etc. Uh, for a case of the other kind, where we have an experimental result and it appears to refute special relativity because we see neutrinos traveling faster than light at the Large Hadron Collider, we find later on that a cable was loose in the experimental apparatus something like that. And so we find that it's not special relativity that has been refuted or relativity, but rather the experiment itself has been poorly done. So again, this does not prevent us from making progress in science. This is all well known to uh, people somewhat versed in, in Popperian epistemology. But people keep on rediscovering the Duhem-Quine thesis and think they have a knockdown argument against actual epistemology. This is false. So if, if, if there are no other reasons for doing philosophy, uh, one reason might be to just stop you from putting your foot in your mouth when you think that you've refuted a very well-known objection to a poorly understood philosophy, namely Papirian epistemology. This thing here about um, also seeing the world through our existing explanations and therefore our existing misconceptions biases our intuition, David says. Among other things, it inhibits us from conceiving of significant changes. Um, yes, and it's, it seems glaringly obvious, especially in physics. Indeed, it's almost a culture in physics remarkably. Um, so according to one school of thought in physics, but you know, maybe this, 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 this school of thought is no longer on the ascendancy, but it's still pervasive. This one school of thought is that we reduce everything to the smallest possible units and to unite the forces governing them and we'd be done. So the, what, we, what we should do in physics is aim to reduce 
everything to the smallest possible units or the smallest possible particles and figure out what are the forces that are governing all of these fundamental particles. If we manage to achieve that, then we're done. We'd have a grand unified theory. And then if we could figure out a way of unifying these forces with gravity, we'd have a so-called theory of everything. As if gravity and the other forces are everything. But they're not. They're not even everything within physics, let alone everything outside of physics. The question as to why some explanation unites gravity and the other fundamental forces, why that explanation should have been correct and not some other, we'll still need answering. And, you know, astrophysics, geophysics, biophysics, they won't stop. Physics won't end. And even particle physics won't end if we unify all of the forces. We'd still want to know We'd, we'd still wish to know if there are smaller particles still, that these fundamental particles, what we think are fundamental at the moment, truly are fundamental. It would be like thinking prior to the... I always think of this as, as kind of reminiscent of, well, prior to the completion, uh, so-called completion, of the periodic table, say once we've found element number, I don't know, 118, um, that we'd have a chemical theory of everything and that then chemistry would be over. Well, no, that would be absolutely ridiculous. With a completed periodic table, we've barely even begun. The periodic table is kind of the starting point for chemistry in many ways. It's not an end in itself. Um, now, just before I begin reading the next paragraph, I, I just want to um, uh, highlight how little progress I've made into this chapter already because... Uh, well, let me, read, let me read the paragraph. Um, when the determinants of future events are unknowable, how should one prepare for them? How can one? Given that some of those determinants are beyond the reach of scientific prediction, what is the right philosophy of the unknown future? What is the rational approach to the unknowable, to the inconceivable? That is the subject of this chapter. So we're kind of still here in the introduction, I'm afraid. Um, I will move a little faster now. So um, let me continue with the book. The terms optimism or pessimism have always been about the unknowable, but they did not originally refer especially to the future as they do today. Originally, optimism was the doctrine that the world, past, present and the future, is as good as it could possibly be. The term was first used to describe an argument of Leibniz, 1646 to 1716, that God, being perfect, would have created nothing less than the best of all possible worlds. Leibniz believed that this idea solved the problem of evil which I mentioned in chapter four. He proposed that all apparent evils in the world are outweighed by good consequences that are too remote to be known. So then David writes about Leibniz, um, and Leibniz uh, had this idea that the best always happened because if you change anything apparently for the better in some way, you know, some uh, little kitty starving on the street corner, if if God did something such that the little kitty wasn't starving on the street corner and suffering in the way that they were suffering, then if God was to change that, then something else would be affected elsewhere in the universe such that the overall net effect would be worse than what we currently have. So this is Leibniz's idea of the best of all possible worlds. But as David observes, you could have an anti-Leibniz philosopher who believes in the worst of all possible worlds such that the world is the way it is and it's as terrible as it possibly can be. And if you changed, uh, if you changed one thing, then something else would change such that things would be better. Or you could have a world exactly halfway between these two or, or any other percentage that you like. Maybe it's exactly 30% evil and 70% good. So none of this is particularly um, helpful. Okay, so I'll, I'll skip past that part and um, begin again. David writes, in everyday usage, a common saying is that an optimist calls a glass half full while a pessimist calls it half empty. But those attitudes are not what I am referring to either. They are matters not of philosophy, but of psychology. More spin than substance. The terms can also refer to moods such as cheerfulness or depression, but again, moods do not necessitate any particular stance about the future. That statesman Winston Churchill suffered from intense depression. Yet his outlook on the future of civilization and his specific expectations as wartime leader were unusually positive. Conversely, the economist Thomas Malthus, a notorious prophet of doom, of whom more below, is said to have been a serene and happy fellow who often had his companions at the dinner table in gales of laughter. Blind optimism 
is a stance towards the future. It consists of proceeding as if one knows that the bad outcomes will not happen. The opposite approach, blind pessimism, often called the precautionary principle, seeks to ward off disaster by avoiding everything not known to be safe. No one seriously advocates either of these two as a universal policy, but their assumptions and their arguments are common and often creep into people's planning. Skipping just another short paragraph about the Titanic, um, and then David writes, but blind pessimism is a blindly optimistic doctrine. It assumes that unforeseen disastrous consequences cannot follow from existing knowledge too, or rather from existing ignorance. Not all shipwrecks happen to record record-breaking ships. Not all shipwrecks happen to record-breaking ships. Not all unforeseen physical disasters need be caused by physics experiments on new technology. But one thing we do know is that protecting ourselves from any disaster, foreseeable or not, or recovering from it once it has happened, requires knowledge. And knowledge has to be created. The harm that can flow from any innovation that does not destroy the growth of knowledge is always finite. The good can be unlimited. There would be no existing ship designs to stick with, nor records to stay within if no one had ever violated the precautionary principle. So present, just pause there, and this is my, my reflection just uh, in brief. Uh, present concerns about climate change, for example, um, there's been some hyperbole recently, like we've only got 10 years left, uh, but the people who say we've only got 100 years left, um, certain prominent politicians uh, raise these sort of numbers. Now, they might not even actually be taken too seriously by anyone, although I, I worry about um, young people who otherwise haven't heard these ideas before. And so this is kind of a form of propaganda that's being put out there. It, 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 is, it is worrying, they are kind of dog whistles. To the extent that such specific prophecies, you know, the world will end in 10 years due to climate change, to the extent they are taken seriously, it's terribly blind pessimism about people. It, it says that nothing that we are able to do over the next 10 years is going to change the course of, uh, is going to change the course of this problem. We're not going to be able to create the knowledge. And that is terribly pessimistic. Okay, so David writes, because pessimism needs to counter that argument, okay, just so just from that argument was that progress has happened, okay, in order to bring us to the point where we are right now. Progress has happened, so therefore the precautionary principle has never been used before. So David has written, because pessimism needs to counter that argument, in order to be at all per persuasive, a recurring theme in pessimistic theories throughout history has been that an exceptionally dangerous moment is imminent. Our Final Century, the book by Martin Rees, makes the case that the period since the mid-20th century has been the first in which technology has been capable of destroying civilization. But that is not so. Many civilizations in history were destroyed by the simple technologies of fire and the sword. Indeed, of all civilizations in history, the overwhelming majority have been destroyed, some intentionally, some as the result of plague or natural disaster. Virtually all of them could have avoided the catastrophes that destroyed them, if only they had possessed a little additional knowledge, such as improved agriculture or military technology, better hygiene or better political or economic institutions. Very few, if any, could have been saved by greater caution about innovation. In fact, most had enthusiastically implemented the precautionary principle. More generally, what they lacked was a certain combination of abstract knowledge and knowledge embodied in technological artifacts, namely sufficient wealth. Let me define that in a non-parochial way as the repertoire of physical transformations that they would be capable of causing. An example of a blindly pessimistic policy is that of trying to make our planet as unobtrusive as possible in the galaxy for fear of contact with extraterrestrial civilizations. Stephen Hawking recently advised this in his television series Into the Universe. He argued, if extraterrestrials ever visit us, I think the outcome would be much as when Christopher Columbus first landed in America, which didn't turn out very well for the Native Americans. He warned that there might be nomadic, space-dwelling civilizations who would strip the Earth of its resources, or imperialist civilizations who would colonize it. The science fiction writer Greg Bear has written some exciting novels based on the premise that the galaxy is full of civilizations that are either predators or prey, and in both cases, they are hiding. This would solve the mystery of the Fermi problem, but it is implausible as a serious explanation. 
For one thing, it depends on civilizations becoming convinced of the existence of predator civilizations in space and totally recognizing themselves in order to hide from them and totally reorganizing themselves in order to hide from them before being noticed, which means before they have invented, say, radio. Okay, I think I've got my camera back now. So I'll continue. Hawking's proposal also overlooks various dangers of not making our existence known to the galaxy, such as being inadvertently wiped out if benign civilizations send robots to our solar system, perhaps to mine what they consider an uninhabited system. And it rests on other misconceptions in addition to the classic flaw of blind pessimism. One is the spaceship Earth idea on a larger scale. The assumption is that progress in a hypothetical rapacious civilization is limited by raw materials rather than by knowledge. What exactly would it come to steal? Gold? Oil? Perhaps our planet's water? Surely not. Since any civilization capable of transporting itself here, or raw materials back across galactic distances, must already have cheap transmutation and hence does not care about the chemical composition of its raw materials. So essentially, the only resource of use to it in our solar system would be the sheer mass of matter in the sun. But matter is available in every star. Perhaps it is collecting entire stars wholesale in order to make a giant black hole as part of some titanic engineering project. But in that case, it, it would, would cost virtually nothing to omit inhabited solar systems, which are presumably only a small minority. Otherwise, it is pointless for us to hide in any case. So would it casually wipe out billions of people? Would we seem like insects to it? This can only seem plausible if one forgets there can be only one type of person Universal explainers and constructors. The idea that there could be beings that are to us, as we are to animals, is a belief in the supernatural. So this is a crucially misunderstood point. It is a rare opinion. The vast majority of people and thinkers on this topic believe in the intelligence continuum. The intelligence continuum is this idea that, well, you've got bacteria, they can't do much except smell their environment and respond to it. And then you've got, I don't know, plants. They respond a little bit more. Uh, insects a bit more. Uh, fish more. And so on. You keep moving up the hierarchy of genetic complexity. And then you have people. You know, we're, we're, we're at the top, but we're just, it's a matter of degree. The difference between us and, let's say, a chimpanzee. And a chimpanzee and a dog and a dog and a cat and a cat and a rat and so on. It goes down. Uh, I think this idea is false. Uh, I think there's a qualitative difference between us who can explain the world and form explanatory theories about the world, which enable us to gain control of the world and every other animal that we know of that exists that doesn't form any explanations and is a victim of its environment rather than the controller of the environment. This is a stark difference. All other animals are on some kind of continuum, if you like, in the ways in which they can respond to the environment around them. They can't explain it and they can't control it, but some can respond better than others. There's very little that a bacteria can do if the environment responds much. An individual bacteria is going to get too hot and die, get too cold and die, encounter too many chemicals and die. The bacteria can't do much, but at least an animal can run away if the temperature gets too hot or too cold, uh, the food becomes too scarce and so on. Humans can, of course, change their environment in order to suit us so that we don't have to run away. Uh, we can build structures around us in order to remain in places that are otherwise hostile. We can create technology. And this idea that aliens out there, as Stephen Hawking is worried about, might treat us like insects is a very well-subscribed idea. Uh, Sam Harris certainly believes in this idea that there could be something out there that has such a high degree of intelligence that it's more moral than us in a way. So, and there could, be, there could be evil aliens out there as well. I think this is uh, just a cultural meme. Uh, it's an ancient cultural meme, I, I would suggest. Um, going back to the times when there were good and bad gods. Um, they, they needed appeasing, whether they were good or bad, but um, the bad gods 
had all the powers that the good gods had, but they had no care or love for people. Uh, more, more recently, over recent decades, we've replaced the idea of gods with um, science fiction entities. And so in Star Trek, you have the evil aliens and you have the good ones as well. Uh, they both have super advanced technology. And so when actual scientists kind of don't move beyond these ideas, it's not exactly refreshing. What is refreshing is David Deutsch in rejecting this obvious way of thinking, this standard way of thinking that we've had for millennia of all powerful beings, some of whom are good and some of whom are bad. Once you understand, once you understand the argument that David Deutsch is making about how progress that happens in one area, physics, epistemology, cannot be completely disconnected from progress that happens in another area, like morality, it becomes pretty obvious why these obvious ways of thinking that other people have are completely false. One assumption, of course, that this all rests upon about these evil aliens is that morality is subjective. And that is close to universally subscribed. And so it's amazing to me that even people who purport to believe in objective morality, like Sam Harris, reject the idea that we would converge on that objective morality. So the aliens would discover a better morality than we do, and that would not entail wiping us out. That would not entail causing us to suffer. That would entail helping us to learn what they've learned. Okay, so back to the, back to the book. <clears throat> David writes, Moreover, there is only one way of making progress, conjecture and criticism. And the only moral values that permit sustained progress are the objective values that the Enlightenment has begun to discover. No doubt the extraterrestrial's morality is different from ours, but that will not be because it resembles that of the conquistadors. Nor would we be in serious danger of culture shock from contact with an advanced civilization. It will know how to educate its own children, or AIs, so it will know how to educate us, and in particular, to teach us how to use its computers. So again, me talking here, why people think knowledge can be partitioned in this way, such that advancements in one area could mean regression in another area is a mystery. It's certainly a prejudice. Aliens who make scientific progress will make moral progress. If you can travel to the other side of the galaxy, then your morality is probably galaxies ahead as well. Um, the same is true of AGI, right? Artificial General Intelligence. The same arguments hold. If we think it's an advance to reduce suffering, let's say, in the universe, why would aliens or super advanced um, artificial intelligence conclude otherwise. If they can understand so much more about physics and computation and engineering and science broadly than we can and faster than we can, why should we imagine that, a, that, that when it comes to the topic of morality, these super intelligent beings, be they aliens or artificial general intelligence, why would we imagine they must be more primitive than we are? That they won't care about other conscious creatures? How could they survive as long as they have if they did think that? If they did think that killing other beings was a way to make progress? Okay, so this is my bookend for the end of part one. As it turns out, this is going to be a three-part epic, but I think if any chapter deserves a three-part epic, it is the chapter on optimism. I do apologize for the long detour during this particular episode all about Nick Bostrom, who in fact is to be fair, barely even mentioned in the beginning of Infinity. Indeed, he's only mentioned once, and it's to do with his singularity argument, nothing to do with his uh, pessimism, really. I suppose this part one has really been an introduction to set the scene for what's to come in parts two and three, where I promise there'll be more quoting. Until then, 